Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Dear listeners, this episode deals with the subjects of sexual violence and human trafficking. Please listen at your own discretion. So today is December 18th, and when you reached out to me, you mentioned that you've specifically wanted to talk to me on this day. Last night, December 17th, I fell into a deep hole and I couldn't figure out why. I was depressed. I was, I'm going to cry now. I just, it just hit me again. It really hasn't done that in a long, long time. This morning, I woke up and realized what I will call the rape aversary <laughs> is really a time of grieving a loss. I lost that kid. I lost that innocence. In a few short hours, I was robbed of that. It's taken me 45 years to make the decision that I don't have to accept that December 18th has to be a day I bury myself in my house and I'm sad and, you know, that's just giving him more power. So I'm hoping that by acknowledging this out loud and with it being so raw, I think it's a really another good step in my recovery. I thought my only way out was to kill myself. I didn't know what else to do. I went into complete shock. I disassociated. They see it as entertainment. They don't see us as real people. The online sleuths, you know, I've got a very complicated history with that group. My stories have gotten people freed from prison. It's helped catch killers. There is no standards and protocols for how to handle any of that. And so you end up just chewing on the same nonsense until you're deep in a twisted funhouse of mirrors. Somebody asked, is it disrespectful if I wear something that has blood spatter on it? It sells newspapers, it sells magazines, it gets viewership. And that's what it's all about. It's money, money, money. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Blood Money, a Labyrinth's miniseries. With how desensitized we've all gotten to true crime, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that every true crime story is someone's private trauma, repackaged as public entertainment. And most of the time, the subject has no choice. When my roommate was murdered, I barely had a chance to grieve before I was accused. And then the trauma I endured over the next eight years of trial and imprisonment was horrifically public. Even after I was acquitted, I didn't have the luxury of processing that pain in private. The global media machine and the true crime industry was mining that tragedy for every scrap of attention, engagement, and profit. If I chose to never speak of it again, 
not to write a memoir, give an interview, or participate in a documentary, that wouldn't have stopped them tearing me apart. It would only mean that of all the voices in that chorus, mine would be absent. That's why talking to the media about my wrongful conviction has always felt like a devil's bargain, a bad choice among bad choices, and one that I always make cautiously. This is a dilemma that all crime victims face when their tragedies get discovered by the true crime industry. To understand what's at stake in trying to make true crime more ethical, we need to hear from victims and survivors like Chris Padretti, whose voice you heard at the start of this episode. In 1976, at the age of 15, she was raped and nearly killed in her own home. So I was 15 and it was a week before Christmas. My priorities were go shopping, hanging out with my friends, listening to music, going to school. I had just started a new high school. I was very religious at that time and I truly believed in God and that he would never give us anything that we couldn't handle. I was at home, I was playing the piano and my parents were at a Christmas party. My sister was at work. Not a big deal, it was only like seven o'clock at night. My sister would be home by nine. And as I was playing, I heard a noise. And so I, I stopped and I listened. Before I could even really start playing again, there was a quick shadow coming around me. And then before I knew it, there was a knife at my throat and telling me that the knife would go all the way through if I screamed or you know didn't do what he said. I went into complete shock. I disassociated. He took me outside, cut my clothes off. And throughout that night, I, I sat outside naked and then he would bring me back in. Remember, it's December, it's pretty cold outside. And he raped me in my parents' room, brought me back out, then he raped me in the family room. And being blindfolded and gagged, I only knew from the perspective of how I knew our house was laid out. So long story short, he's very quiet. Uh, I tried to move because the house was quiet and he was sitting right next to me. Don't do that again or I'm going to kill you. Finally, uh, as this ended, I, I remember singing Jesus Loves Me in my head so that I could, I don't know, just survive. Finally, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I was like, this is it. I'm going to get up. And if he's there, I don't care. Because I really thought that was going to be my last day anyways. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore, just laying there. So I moved again and he wasn't right there at me anymore. And I managed to get up. And I was able to use the phone back then. We didn't have 911. You would have to call the sheriff department, but my hands were still tied. So I was able to kind of bend backwards and dial my neighbor and ask her to bring her dad over. And then they took it from there, called the police. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry. In the immediacy after that happened, how did you and your family process the incident? What was your immediate thoughts in the aftermath of what had happened to you, why it happened? What do you do about it? I honestly don't remember whatever I was thinking because from the end of the rape, then we have the police interrogation. And then from there, you go to the hospital to be violated again with the rape kit. So it's all like this terrible, horrible nightmare. I had just gone through this experience that I didn't even know that I would live through. And within 
an hour of him being gone, you're being asked to relive that. Tell me how big his penis was. What did he smell like? They're trying to find clues. And at that age for me, I don't know what's a big penis or a small penis, right? I'm a kid. And so it was very humiliating and scary for me. And then when you go to the hospital, basically they're raping you again. Every area he touched, they're magnifying, they're getting in there, they're trying to get clues. I remember that big magnifying glass, just, and how we processed it was uh, that we didn't process it. My sister and I were actually ordered by my father to never speak about it. And it was terrible because you lose your friends, especially young kids. Like this isn't something we understand. People don't talk about it. And when they find out maybe that it did happen, then it's almost like you're contagious. They back it up. I'm so sorry. And then you don't hear from them anymore. Mm. The ignorance is not their fault. It's our culture. But that is what happens to, you know, the rape victim is they're isolated. So for all those years, it just wasn't processed. It was kind of put in the back and shut the door tightly and try your best to to go forward. My mom and dad, even when they both were on their deathbed, it just was never spoken about. The trauma of the assault and of keeping it secret reverberated through Chris's life. I went through two marriages. I had several relationships that were broken. And I will take responsibility because I didn't make good choices. I was always escaping. Hmm. I lost that trust. So I wasn't a very good person at committing. I used to make a joke when I was younger and dating, you know, oh, he wore the wrong color socks. He's out. Like it didn't (laughs) take much for me to move on. Hmm. Right. Because I didn't, I just didn't have that ability. So uh, I don't think I actually found who I was. I think I was in a, uh, uh, you know, on the computer when it's searching, it goes round mm-hmm. and round and round and round, but nothing comes up. Hmm. I think that's how I lived 40 years of my life. Wow. I'm really grateful that I did find myself, but I'm really angry that those years were stolen. When did you first decide you were going to break that vow of silence and talk about what had happened to you? When he was caught, 42 years later. My husband said, hey, there's this article in the newspaper that I think you should read. And I just got home from work and I was like, no, it's okay, I'll just read it later. And he kept saying, you might want to read it. And I was like, I don't want to read it. I'll do it later. Just let me just, you know back a second. Anyways, finally, he went and he got the paper and he sat it down in front of me and said, I think you should read this. And it was a story about a woman who had been raped. And I couldn't believe it. Like, she was raped by the same person I was raped by. And I was shocked and I was kind of angry at her because even at 54 years old, it was still in my mind that this is not to be talked about. So I wrote to the editor and asked if he could give her my number. And she called me and she said, I'll never forget this. It's very odd, but she said, do you want me to read you your story? Like of what happened to you? And I was okay. I had no idea there are books out there that detailed each of our rapes. 
And so she read me my rape. Whoa. That's exactly how I felt. And so I went into like shock again, right? I just stood there and just frozen because I hadn't heard that, you know, in so many years. And so she called Carol, Carol Daly, who was an investigator. And Carol Daly actually came to my home a couple of days later and was so sweet. And she had brought me my police report. So now I had it in front of me instead of just hearing somebody read me what a book had said. And so I called my sister and my husband, they came over and I read that report to all of them. It was really hard, but I thought instead of them wondering what's in it, because I had told my husband, but all I said was I was raped. I never went into details. Wow. And then 21 days later, he was caught. Oof. And that's insane to me. I thought he was dead. Back when Chris had first been raped, a pattern of assaults had pointed to a man known then as the East Area Rapist. But DNA later linked that assailant with a series of murders committed by a man known as the original Night Stalker, and later, the Golden State Killer. That was the man who had raped and threatened to kill Chris, and his capture over 40 years later, after committing at least 13 murders and 51 rapes, was a big deal. We went to the arraignment, and we were in this big room, and it was a conference room, and this room was packed, and I just remember looking around, like, is this one? Is this a victim? And it was just, like, crazy. And then they got us into these vans, and we went in this back way. The press was everywhere. And once we were inside, I was able to actually meet a few. And then I met a few more, and then we got together for a barbecue at my house. And I remember even that day, just looking like he was in her home and 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 her home, my home and her home and her home, because we were all together, not all 50, but you know, there was a lot of us. And it struck me like, wow, like what terror, what a monster. Because mm. you hear us as, oh, these people are Jane Doe's or, you know, people that don't have an identity, but every one of these women have an identity and they all are successful and they're beautiful and they're brave. And it was really emotional. And then I continued to meet more and more and more. And now I'm really good friends with some of them and we are still connected. One day, one of my friends, we looked at each other and we're like, you know what? You're not just my rape friend. Like you're my friend. And Hmm. that was, that was really cool. The arrest of Chris's rapist brought about intense media attention but it also connected her to a community of survivors. Chris started a Facebook group for victims of sexual assault a few years ago, and it now has over 700 members. They're just amazing people. And we have people that are 65 years old that have never told anybody. Hmm. And they trust the group enough to tell us. And then sometimes if I do a TV show or whatever, someone will reach out and say, I just never knew there was someone I could talk to. And it's just a life support. Clearly, for Chris, lots of positives have come from sharing her story publicly. That community would not have found each other if people weren't willing to speak out and break the culture of silence. But that doesn't mean that Chris hasn't had negative experiences with the media, particularly when she's been interviewed for documentaries. When I first started doing it, I did not ask them any questions and I did not create any boundaries because I didn't know how. Mm. And I didn't think about it. I just thought I got to tell my story. 
when we first tell our story, we're very vulnerable. The last thing I thought of was that somebody might try to exploit or take out of context or show things that I asked not to show. I never realized I had the power to say off limits. For me, it was this person is kind of uh, an authority and I'm to answer their questions because it's the interview. I didn't see it as a conversation for a very long time where I could draw a line. And so then as it kind of continued on, I began to draw boundaries. Like, I don't want to talk about this or that. And so they would talk about what I wanted to, but that would always be about the last minute of the show. Hmm. So the documentaries are really about sensationalism and they're really catered to the true crime fans out there. And I feel that the majority of them don't care about the survivor because that's a boring part. They want the suspense. And so many times I have done these and what comes out is nothing like what was promised. It's all ditched on the floor. And uh, like in one of them, I won't mention it, but one of the gals whose uh, father was murdered, she saw footage and photographs of her parents or her dad and his wife dead that she had never even seen. Wow. And she was just like, that was a bad day. (laughs) That was a really bad day for her. So I am probably a little more wary these days and something that I've learned the hard way. I'm very aware now to not say anything that I don't want aired. So I think the documentaries are more for ratings. And and I want to make clear, I don't know if people know, but we're not paid for any of this. Everything that we do is to share our experience and hopefully reach another person that needs support. But for these documentaries, they are getting paid and they're getting paid a lot of money. So I don't want people to think that we do this for gain. Mm-hmm. The podcasts, on the other hand, though, are much more sensitive. Maybe it's just the podcast I have chosen to go on, but I feel as though they, they care and they are doing the same thing. They want to find others that could benefit and pay it forward. If I'm in my track of healing and there's something, anything I can offer somebody else, I definitely want to do that. And I think most podcasters that I've spoken with are doing their podcast for that very same reason. Like many crime survivors in the public eye, Chris's experience with the media has been a mixed bag. Most crime survivors don't go into interviews with a sophisticated understanding of journalistic standards and practices. They're figuring it out as they go and are vulnerable to content creators who want to exploit their story for profit. No one knows that better than our next guest, She's experienced firsthand how media coverage can be its own kind of trauma. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast is only possible thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. My name is Christine Marie. I am 60 years old. I was born in Michigan, 
I have a PhD in media psychology. My passion is helping people, but I also love animals and I have a small petting farm, which delights me every single day of my life. I have unique skills that have helped me help children, including that I am a ventriloquist. Wow. And I love teaching <laughs> and I love teaching children to read. These days, Christine has a full and happy life doing what she loves. But getting here was far from a straight line. My grandfather was a Methodist minister. My mother, as a result, always had to go to church every Sunday. And she decided that when she had children, she was not going to haul them off to church, just let them grow up and make their own decisions. And so I ended up researching through books, and I was examining different religious doctrines. Catholics believe this, the Baptists believe that, the Methodists have this spin on it. So it was like I was shopping to decide which doctrines do I think are the best. And based on that, I came up with the LDS Church because you know, they believed that babies are not born in sin. They had a big family focus, and that was very appealing to me. That is, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormon Church. And I loved my experience of being LDS. 95% of it was extraordinary. It gave me a sense of, of meaning and a purpose in life. I ended up going on a mission and getting married in the temple and doing everything that a good Mormon would do. I had four children, a faithful LDS husband. I would visit the temple as often as we could afford it because we had to travel to get there. But I sinned. I divorced my husband and I started dating outside of the church. I was having a crisis in faith. And I ended up in a wonderful relationship with a single man, of course, and I slept with him. And that's a no-no, to sleep with somebody outside of the bonds of marriage. And I ended up getting excommunicated. Once I was excommunicated, I was going to hell. I couldn't wear my garments anymore. I couldn't pay tithing. And I just felt like I had the scarlet letter. I was wearing the scarlet letter. And I went running back to Mormonism and I ended up getting rebaptized. So that meant all my sins were washed away. So now I was never going to sin again. I was going to wait until I was married to ever be physical again. And I wanted, I wanted to go back to the temple. I moved to Utah. And at my very first Mormon single stance after I moved to Utah, I saw somebody that looked like this man in my dream. I had a dream about who my husband should be in, in Mormonism. Dreams are seen as revelations. And I thought, all right, this is proof that there is a God. And he was dancing with elderly ladies, not all the pretty girls, but the elderly. And I thought, what a cool guy. Mm. He was an ex-Mormon. So because I'd been excommunicated and rebaptized, and I was so fervent in my faith now, I thought, if anybody can bring him back, it's me. He asked if we could go to breakfast. So I said, yes, but I want my friends to come along. 
And so we all met at this Waffle House and talked. He talked about how, just to prove how dumb Mormons are, he wrote something called the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. All people who believe in the Book of Mormon are familiar with this prophecy within it. There's a part of the Book of Mormon that was not yet translated into English, and it's hidden away on these gold plates. And in the last days, these will come forward and they will be translated, and they will reveal things that haven't been revealed yet because the world is not ready for it. So everybody believes this. They're all wondering, when are the rest of the gold plates coming? And he represented that he wrote them himself and that he gave them to different fundamentalist Mormon communities, and they believed that it was true. And as a result, he was given women, he was given money, and they thought he was the new modern-day Joseph Smith. And I was so turned off. Like, why on earth would you do something like that? Oh, he said that he later told them it was false and that his point was to show me and to show others that anybody could have written the Book of Mormon and you're all just naive to believe that it was scripture when it was just a man-made religion. That presented quite a challenge for me because I thought, well, God sent him to me for a reason. And so, so some things happened. He's wooing me and I wouldn't sleep with him. And that was not acceptable to him. So we get together, and here I am to tell him, I don't want to date you anymore. And his response was unexpected. And he starts crying. He says, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to break your faith, and I couldn't. And I'm sorry that I did that, but I have something I have to tell you. I lied when I said the sealed portion I wrote was fake. I really did translate it. And the reason I have been posing as an atheist was to test you. And I could not break your faith. And therefore, the Lord has allowed me to tell you the whole truth. And so then I'm curious because you have to remember in Mormon history, there is precedent for tests. There's precedent for people posing as people they weren't. In the Book of Mormon, there is a man named Abinadi who disguised himself to preach among the people that hated him. There was also a prophet named Samuel the Lamanite. Samuel the Lamanite wasn't part of the mainstream church at that time. He was from afar. So it was like an outsider came in and he put the church in order. So he emails me the first eight chapters of his translation. And it gave me the same feeling that I felt when I read the Book of Mormon the first time. And then he says... The reason you had that dream about me is because I am to become your husband and you are to help me complete this mission. So then all of a sudden, everything made sense. And I thought God was behind it all. So what he said is, I have been called to be a prophet and like Samuel the Lamanite who came from the outside. And I've had to pose as an atheist. 
And he said, of all the women that I've dated, I've been able to pull them out of religion and turn them into atheists, but not you. You are the one that passed the test. It may be hard to understand how Christine could see this man as a true prophet if you're not familiar with the role of prophets in the Mormon faith. And the church is led by a man that is known as a prophet. The founder of the church was Joseph Smith. He was the first modern-day prophet. After Joseph Smith, there's a succession of prophets. There's only one prophet on the earth at a time, and the prophet speaks for God. And in my experience with mainstream Mormonism, the prophet was always an elderly man, very kind. The revelations weren't anything super profound, just like be prepared for disasters, have family home evening once a week, just wise, benign pieces of advice. But I did believe that the prophet was the mouthpiece of God, as do all mainstream Mormons and all offshoots of Mormonism. If the prophet speaks to you in prophet mode, it's like you're talking with God. The belief in the power of a prophet's word is a critical part of the Mormon faith. And that belief made Christine uniquely vulnerable. He wanted to become my husband the way they used to do it in the Bible, which was simply by consummating the marriage. So we were in Las Vegas and I sat there and I said one last time, look me in the eyes and promise me you're not deceiving me just for this purpose. And he said, my dear sister, and sister's just a a word they use for women, faithful women in the church. He said, I wish I was deceiving you. So I ended up believing we consummated. I believed I was his wife. Being the wife of a prophet is an honor. And what he explained is that because I was his wife spiritually, that I had to go through increased tests. And that made sense to me. In Mormonism, it is believed that the faithful will be tested. It's a very strong theme in Mormonism. And when you make sacrifices, then your faith grows. Sacrifices are almost foundational, whether it's just paying your tithing 10% of your income or whether it's sacrificing to help others. But sacrificing is seen as a blessing. And soon the test began. The first test was that I had to sell everything extra to put it into the fund to help the poor and needy, which I did. Then it was to sell things that I cherished. Then it was to make sure that my children were in a safe situation because I would be in danger as the wife of the prophet, helping him translate the sealed portion. So my two oldest boys went to live with their father, but I then had to live among the poor and needy. It came like an onslaught. And I was just wanting to pass each test because I had too much invested. Mm -hmm. Each time I passed the test, and by the time I was done passing all the tests he required of me, which ultimately meant living among these ex-cons in this terrifying, 
decrepit hotel in downtown Salt Lake where I was raped and beaten and robbed and sex trafficked. And he justified me being in this position where I was sexually exploited by saying that I needed to descend below all things the way Christ did, basically, that I had to be the lowest, be willing to sacrifice my reputation and even my life. There was nothing that I could not sacrifice. So I basically, in this process, you know, it was like one little baby step at a time, steps that were imperceptible or like a frog in a pot of boiling water. It's one degree at a time, mm-hmm. one degree at a time until the next thing you know, you're looking at death. Christine doesn't like to name her false prophet because she doesn't want to increase his platform. For storytelling purposes, she calls him Adam. I was in a catch-22. If Adam was not a prophet, and I really was not sealed to him for time and all eternity, then I had just sinned. And I would be excommunicated again, and I would never make it to the highest degree of heaven. I would be damned. I just knew it. So my critical thinking rearranged itself so that I could find reasons to believe that he really was the prophet and to not give up no matter what test he gave me. Because if I did not pass the test with the prophet, then I was going to hell. Mm-hmm. My brain basically quit working. I was simply in survival mode. I thought my only way out was to kill myself because I, 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 I didn't know what else to do. Mm. You know, I was damned if I believed. I was damned if I didn't believe. And here I was stuck. I thought if I did not do what he said or if I did not perform when a man showed up at my door and wanted me to perform, I thought I would never, maybe I would never be reunited with my children even on this earth. Hmm. I thought maybe I would lose everything I'd sacrificed for and not be with them in eternity. And I remember when I was thinking about stepping in front of a truck, I remember planning it, sitting on the floor of my tiny room with cockroaches. I wrote out my funeral plans. I got out the pictures of my children. And I laid them on the floor in a semicircle around me. And just looked at them and and it was such a different life. It was such a happy life. It was my true purpose in life. And I thought, why am I here? Why would God do this to me? And I had no explanation. And I remember walking at night through the most dangerous parts of the city, just wishing that somebody would murder me so so that my children wouldn't have to think that their mom committed suicide. And, you know, I was very touch and go, hour by hour, Should I, you know, should I do it now? (laughs) 
Christine's situation was so desperate, she couldn't see a way out. That's when someone finally intervened to help her. My prophet went to jail for violating a protective order against one of his ex-polygamous wives. And when he was in jail, he sent men to me that got out of jail. One of these men had been one of his accomplices. His name was Jeff. And when Jeff came to my room, I slept with him as I was supposed to. And I showed him pictures of my children. And I, you know, I cried and told him some of the things that had been happening and how happy I was that he was there because I knew that as long as he was there, I was not going to end my life. But he started crying. He laid his head in my lap and he was sobbing. And I didn't know why. And he said, I got to go get some fresh air and get some coffee. I'm just overwhelmed. And so he left and he didn't come back for hours. And I started to be afraid again because I was so suicidal and I didn't know what happened. And then he came back that afternoon and he had dragged the fiancé with him. That is, Adam's fiancé. Christine had met her before, but she and Adam had lied and represented her as a fellow acolyte. And I'll never forget when Jeff said, Adam is a fraud. I lied to help him and he apologized. And then the fiancé said, oh, that none of them were believers. So he exploited me with the help of others, accomplices. He exploited me financially, psychologically, spiritually, physically, sexually. He separated me from my children. I remember sinking to the ground on my knees and rocking back and forth, wailing, and seeing my life pass before my eyes because of how close I had been to killing myself. It was absolute psychological torture, custom-made for me, preying on everything that I held sacred and destroying my life. You know, I mean, Jeff saved my life, literally saved my life. Christine made it out and slowly built a new life for herself. She got an MBA, got married, and even started a tech company with her new husband. But her ordeal wasn't over. She now faced a new challenge, going public with her story. I want to send the message that religion can be a tool of human trafficking and say, there is such an enormous power differential between your religious leader and you, especially if you believe that religious leader is a prophet or talks to God. I wanted to show that we were making a big mistake as a society by not talking about the psychological chains of human trafficking because we watch movies like Taken and we think that human trafficking involves kidnapping and transporting people to other countries, but it doesn't. That's not a requirement. So I told my story to what I thought was a reputable production company. I was very nervous about it. And I was having flashbacks while I was doing this. You know, on camera, I was having flashbacks and I was crying. But when the documentary came out, it wasn't a documentary. It was docudrama. And it was so misrepresentative of my story 
I felt it was very victim shaming. The producers asked me to find somebody from my past who could talk about who I was before. And so I did. Well, this person happened to be an actor as well, a really good actor. And so they coached him into saying things. For example, I never had any communication with him during this whole time when I was being exploited. None. And I never told him what was happening. And I was shocked when the docudrama came out and they had this man who I do not blame because he didn't know my story, who didn't even know my story. He said, when Christine told me she was doing this, I was like, what are you doing? I felt like there was a knife in my stomach. In another place, he said, she was brainwashed. She was totally brainwashed. Another knife in my stomach. Because what the production wanted to do is make it look as if, it's very sensational, as if I was brainwashed into willingly prostituting myself. There was no mention of human trafficking. There was no coercion. And they represented it as if I was did this out of the love I had for this monster. They didn't bring in the other people. There were no beatings and assaults, maybe one little clip. And then they even made entire sentences. They cut and pasted entire sentences together out of words from other places. And it would look as if I was saying it because it was a docudrama. They could put my head talking and then patch together words over footage back to my head talking with another part. The outcome of this misrepresentation was that I was just so in love with this man, I was willing to do anything for him. And they showed a man knock on the door and I'd just be like, come in, you know, <laughs> like no big deal, you know, shame on them. Yes, it was sensational, but it was my life. I was sharing it to make something good come from something so negative. And what they did is amplified the trauma. Whatever humiliation he wanted me to feel, this television network completed the job. Mm. Only in front of millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And the public response was vile hatred towards me. I felt like the most slut-shamed mother in the universe. The comments were inflammatory. What were people saying? Oh, I can't believe she got her children back. I wouldn't trust her caring for a puppy, let alone a child. Wow. How could she be so stupid? Good for him. If she was that stupid, she deserved it. The thing that hurt me the most is that nobody was commenting against my trafficker. All of the hatred was towards me. And I would just read these comments. And Amanda, I suppose you, you have felt this too. I would just read these comments and just have a tear streaming down my cheek for like, you know, an hour after hour after hour. The response to the documentary was so traumatic, it undid the work that Christine had done to heal. I couldn't shake it off. I, I really started having flashbacks. I mean, I thought I had gotten rid of all my self-blame, but, you know, when you have an entire world saying, you deserve this, then I got mad at my therapist because I thought they were lying to me just to make me feel better. I did deserve it, you know? So all the self-blame came crashing back in like a bursting dam. 
And I just start over on my recovery path. And, you know, for a year, I was afraid to go for a walk mm. by myself because I flashed back into thinking, maybe I'll step in front of a truck. So for a year, I stayed home. I related to Monica Lewinsky when she said her mother would watch her take a shower because that's how I was. Once my husband was like, Christine, Christine, what are you doing? And I was in the shower and I hadn't even realized that I had been in the shower for three hours, just lost. Public humiliation is traumatizing. It shakes up everything that you believe about yourself and changes how you interact with other people. For me, the way that I feel about it is that there's me and then there's the version of me that exists in other people's minds. And whenever I walk into a room, that person, that version of me, whoever it is, is also in the room with me. And I see very early on in any sort of interactions that I have with people what version of me they have in their mind. And it's fascinating because it means that I have a weirdly access to other people's prejudices <laughs> because we're all vulnerable to media narratives. We all sort of casually absorb media narratives all the time. None of us are immune to it. When you're publicly humiliated, you're like shunned and cast out of the family of man, mankind. And it's especially hard if they're unable to vindicate themselves of blame. How can you vindicate yourself in front of millions of people when you don't have that platform the television network does? Mm -hmm. You can say, hey, that's not true in some comment somewhere. But with many reality shows, for example, you can't even comment. Mm -hmm. If somebody dies, you have the right to mourn. Society understands that. But when your legacy is destroyed in the media and everybody thinks it's true, you're mourning the loss of your real narrative identity. And society doesn't support you in it because they don't care. Dealing with public attention after living through one of the worst experiences of your life can be overwhelming and psychologically damaging. So why do some subjects of true crime narratives continue to put themselves out there, time after time? Sometimes it's essential for spurring action in cases that would otherwise remain stalled. I'm Sarah Turney, and I host the Voices for Justice podcast and the Disappearances podcast on Spotify. Although I'm not a consumer of true crime, it's something I care a lot about. For me, being in true crime is about advocacy versus entertainment. The reason I'm here is to help people. I focus on unsolved, and I try to focus on the social issues around some of these unsolved cases, especially with Voices for Justice. I started in my closet, 100% independent, and basically, if there's a case in need of justice, I try to cover Sarah's not just a true crime content creator, though. She comes to the genre from a very personal place. Her sister went missing in 2001. 21 years. And how old were you when this happened? I was just 12. Sarah didn't start her podcast for fun. She did it out of a sense of duty to get the truth out about her sister's case. 
The police told me, we suggest you get media coverage. And after begging all these major media outlets to cover my sister's story and getting told no, I found the podcasting community and the independent creator community. I started my podcast in 2019, and I hope that my content helped push my sister's case forward. I do believe that it helped my sister's case. The police told me to get media attention, and bam, I did. You know, a million followers on TikTok, people sharing it all over the place. I accomplished my goal. Do you mind talking to me a little bit about what it feels like so that people can understand when you find yourself suddenly plunged into the center of a true crime as someone who is a very, very close person to someone who's gone missing. What is that like? Oh, I mean, it was horrible. It took over every aspect of my life. When the police told me it's basically on me to figure out my sister's case, I didn't take that lightly. I took that as a directive. And so I gave up my life to do that. I was working full time and I would come home and do interviews, sometimes three or four at night until I I basically fell asleep. When I started the podcast, it, it just got even worse. It was great and very liberating because I was finally taking control of my sister's narrative for the first time ever. But I mean, in terms of emotional damage and being healthy, I mean, I I can't even describe it to you. My whole life was working for my sister because I truly felt like I was her only hope. And that was consuming every moment of my time. I mean, at a certain point, I was literally editing my podcast at my other job. I just, I didn't know what else to do. And every moment that I wasn't working for her, I felt this extreme guilt, despite it literally destroying me. So while you were attempting to raise awareness about your sister's case, were there other people telling the story of what happened to your sister at the same time? Absolutely. You know, especially when I got really popular on TikTok, that's when major news outlets finally started covering it. But certainly along the way, there were plenty of creators who took it upon themselves to just cover the case without my input. What was that like? What's the spectrum of egregious to, okay, maybe maybe helps raise awareness? What's your experience with that? Yeah, I love that you called it a spectrum because it is. There's definitely a difference in coverage, right? Some people, I felt so fortunate, you know, they would, they had this huge platform and they would do the story and I didn't have to do anything. And I was so expended that I was very happy about that. But then there were others who obviously got a lot of things wrong. They would say pretty horrible things like, well, this will never be solved. And it's like, then why'd you cover it? You know what I mean? Mm. But yeah, I mean, it was all over the board. People selling merch with her face on it, not telling me about it, you know, just getting the facts horrifically wrong. And then there were some amazing people who it was like a gift when they did an episode. You know, in the beginning, I would do an interview and it would take me two, three days to recover, you know, as you do more, as I did you know, 50, 60 podcasts, whatever it was, that does lessen over time. Like I said, it was my entire life, every waking moment. That's all I could think about is how can I promote her case? How can I get on another podcast? How can I spread the word? But once the arrest was made, I finally got some clarity and realized just how unhealthy it was. The person who was finally charged with the murder of Sarah's sister was her father, Michael Turney. And it was all thanks to Sarah's tireless activism and the support of her community on social media. So... From your experience, you know, you're coming into the true crime world from a place of personal investment. 
as you have encountered other people in this world, like professional entertainers, one might say, where do you see them coming from? Who are the people who are creating true crime content? Again, I think that there's a spectrum. There are absolutely people in this industry that just want to be entertainers and they just want to get fame and money. And then I do believe that there is a whole huge community out there of creators who really want to help. I think the issue is that that sensational entertainment type of content tends to do better. I do think that it's changing, but for a very long time, this sensational way of doing true crime was really the biggest and best way to do it if you're looking at just a downloads number, you know, uh, perspective. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a huge spectrum. What is your take for the reason why your podcast and your TikTok in particular blew up so much if you were refusing to sensationalize? I think that they just genuinely cared for me and wanted to see me win. I felt like I was this underdog character that they just wanted to root for and see finally get justice. I also had the blessing that in my sister's case, there's not a lot of debate about what happened. It's not this huge mystery where anything could have happened. So I think people just saw what's right in front of them, saw how sad and desperate and what crazy situation I was in and just genuinely wanted to help. With that being said, though, I can't say that I've never sensationalized my own sister's case for media attention. I believe that by following especially some of these TikTok trends, I absolutely did. But I also feel like there's a difference when it's my sister versus somebody else. Like I will make a TikTok about where I would before the arrest about um, my sister that I would never make a TikTok about somebody else, you know, without their family permission. So um, it, it's it's complicated. How would you define how you draw those lines? What kinds of content someone who is personally involved in a case can put out into the world versus some random journalist or wannabe journalist? Well, you know, to be honest, I feel like if you're not close to that person, you need to be really cautious of that. You need to make sure that you're not putting out negativity in the world. I mean, if it's not your family member, if it's not your friend, if it's not your loved one, it's not really your place. That's my opinion. Hmm. How, do, do you run into people who have a very different opinion? And, what, and if you do, how do you respond to those people? I mean, absolutely. I run into the argument all the time of, well, the people have a right to know and freedom of speech. And, you know, I, I think that there is a difference between what's legal and what's morally correct. But usually when I run into people like that, I usually just ignore them. I don't want to give people more attention and draw more attention to that cause if I don't believe in it. Hmm. Why do you think that unsolved cases needed media coverage? I don't think they all do, to be honest. You know, I think most of them do, but there are cases that probably don't need more coverage. What comes with media coverage in unsolved cases is more resources, whether it's higher up in the state or it's just the police department or the district attorney's office. When they see a case get so much attention, they're more likely to allocate resources to help that case. That's been my experience, and that's why I feel that media coverage is helpful in most unsolved cases. It seems like it would be just an obviously good thing. Get more attention, get more resources. Does more attention on a case come with unintended consequences? 
Absolutely. And I think that that's something that everyone seeking media coverage for a case needs to recognize is when you get a ton of media coverage on a case, you get a lot more eyes on that. And that means a lot more trolls and eyes that Mm -hmm. may not have the best intentions. People that will send you horrible messages or say terrible things about you on the internet. So absolutely, it's a double-edged sword. Have you experienced this personally? Absolutely. My goodness. I have experienced more trolls than I would like to admit. I've gone through some, I mean, honestly, horrific experiences being in the media. I'm curious if you have come across in your time other family members of missing persons and what are some of the experiences that you have in common? Oh, sure. I know a lot of family members in this space. And I mean, it's very common that we feel exploited, that we are talked down to, that we are told that we are too emotional, that we can't have any sense of logic or understanding because we can't see what's in front of us because of the case. We are beat down and used for this content and really just thrown away. We will spend hours with a creator making content with them just because we need to get the word out. And then they kind of throw us away and never talk to us again. Or if we try to follow up and ask for help, we don't get an answer. So, I mean, my experience is not really unique when it comes down to how I was treated in the media. We are often lied to, exploited, and, you know, just downright used and thrown away. Hmm. How common is it for family members, direct or indirect victims of these crimes, come under scrutiny? And what does that feel like? Oh, it's extremely common. There's one gentleman who uh, says that he speaks to spirits and specifically was speaking to my sister's spirit. And he had some misinformation. And I was like, hey, she didn't go missing from here. She went missing from here. Could you please correct that? Probably one of the only times I've reached out to people, but he had a huge audience of 250,000 followers. And then he said I was suspicious and proceeded to make over 100 videos about just how suspicious I was, including videos depicting my sister's spirit, he says, calling people terrible names that didn't agree with his content. I mean, it was it was horrific. I tried to get a restraining order. My lawyers couldn't find him. And he's just out there continuing to do it to other families. Wow. I'm so sorry. Wow. It's a numbers game. The bigger these cases get, the more mean people you're going to have, for lack of a better word. So, I mean, I see it all the time. And, I mean, honestly, I usually just laugh it off because I was 12. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, let's talk about how I was a 12-year-old mastermind and pulled this off for 21 years. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think... It comes from just people wanting to make up conspiracy theories. They see it as entertainment. They don't see us as real people. More than it being hurtful to us, it's very damaging to the cases. Hmm. What's interesting is that people either didn't know that there were certain harmful things that were going on and exploitation, but also they didn't realize that we didn't have the power in the situation. I can't tell you the number of times that people have just assumed that I've been paid for every interview that I've done about my case or that I had creative control over a documentary that was made about the case. And it's like, no, 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 I have no control. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me about some of the assumptions that you've seen people have about what it's like to be at the center of a true crime? And if you can correct them, what are some of the truths about true crime? 
Oh, I would love to. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people like me get paid for interviews because we don't. I have never once been paid for an interview about my sister. I've been in Elle Magazine, Rolling Stone, People Magazine, ABC 2020. They all blend now. I have not been paid for a single thing. On the flip side, I'm not asking for pay. I was doing it for awareness. So I think that people think people like me or other families are getting filthy rich off of doing these interviews when usually it's the opposite. I can tell you that I basically went bankrupt working for my sister and trying to get to events that weren't paying me or even paying my way. I paid thousands of dollars to go to those true crime conventions. It's not like I'm making a buck or having this fabulous vacation. So I think that's a huge misconception that needs to be cleared up. We also rarely have any control. When you enter something like a documentary deal, you have to fight so hard for any semblance of control. And usually by the end, if you're lucky, you can end up with like um, creative consultation, right? Where basically they have to listen to you, but in the end they can do whatever they want. We have no control. We're not getting paid. And most of the time we're doing this to raise awareness versus you look at some of these huge figureheads in true crime they are being paid. Mm -hmm. They're getting these appearance fees. They're getting these speaker fees. They're getting travel paid for, meals, upgraded rooms. Those are the people who are benefiting and profiting in this industry. It's not people like me. It's not the families. We're over here usually paying money, taking time off work or traveling to get this type of exposure. What is your relationship with your audience? I've feel like I have a very special relationship with my audience. When I was fighting for my sister, my family left me to do that by myself. And I sacrificed my job. I sacrificed personal relationships. And it felt like the entire world turned their back on me, except for my audience. When no one was there, it was them. When nobody was texting me and seeing how I was, they were in my DMs doing that. When I needed a petition signed, they were right there with me. When I asked them to share something about my sister, they were there for me. They helped my sister when nobody else wanted to, when the police didn't want to, when the county attorney's office didn't want to, when my own family didn't want to help my sister they were there for me. So when I tell my audience, I love you, it's not a parasocial relationship. They were there for me when no one else was. Not only do I love them dearly, but I also respect them. I will be honest with them. I will tell them when I screw up. I tell them where the money from my merch goes, where the money from my Patreon goes. I respect them so much because they cared enough about me to help me when nobody else did. So I'm very protective over my audience and I love them a lot. Yeah. If you were going to give anyone who is out there creating true crime content some pieces of advice, what would you tell them? Focus on the facts. Ask yourself why you're doing this. If it's just for entertainment, be honest with yourself and be honest with your audience. It's all about intention. Why do you pick the cases you pick? What do you hope to achieve with the coverage that you're creating? And I think as long as you're honest with yourself, most people with a good heart will choose the right direction. Like me, Sarah Turney has a foot in both worlds, as a survivor and a content creator. The stakes and incentives in those worlds are radically different. We've seen the pitfalls and opportunities victims face when confronted with the true crime industry. What about filmmakers, journalists, and podcasters? Next time on Blood Money, we're crawling inside the content machine. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox at Man Under Bridge. 
And please, help us solve the mystery of the five-star review. We know somebody left one. Was it you? Blood Money, a Labyrinth's miniseries, is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written, edited, and produced by us and Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. A very wise person. <laughs> she works for the LA Times. She said one time, she says, you know, Chris, if anyone asks you a question that you're uncomfortable or they throw you off, just start cussing. God damn, fuck you. <laughs> they will never air that. I guarantee you. And I will never, I don't know if I'll ever have the courage to do that. But she goes, if you don't want it aired, start cussing. <laughs> that is amazing. I, that, I love right? that. <laughs> That's Tricks so funny. Trade, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't. I honestly hadn't been, been given that piece of advice before, but that's hilarious. And it's so true. Hello, listener. This episode of Labyrinths could be ad free, but that requires exclusive access. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become a monthly Patreon subscriber, which will grant you access to top secret patron only content. This podcast will self-destruct without your support. Was that too cheesy? Who doesn't like cheese? Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.